Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show, where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on The Virtual Voyage, we had the opportunity to visit Tel Hatzor here in Israel. I'm so grateful for Dr. Shlomit Bakar, one of the archaeologists at Hatzor, who took the time to lead us around at the site. Let's quickly recap what we learned from Shlomit. Hatzor is the largest biblical era site in Israel. It's about 200 acres in total, and we learned a lot of it has not been excavated. We learned that many people groups have inhabited Tel Hatzor over the years, hence its name as a Tel. A process of conquering and rebuilding and conquering and rebuilding took place there, leading to an accumulation of layers. One of the things I found most fascinating was Shlomit's discussion of the Canaanite palace. Remember those seven basalt stairs she uncovered as part of the palace? And when she took us to look at them, they were in perfect condition. They are thousands of years old, but they looked brand new. Although Hatzor, as a city, was very powerful, we know the book of Joshua called it the head of all those Canaanite kingdoms. And at that point, it was powerful, but it continued to be powerful even beyond just the the time related to the book of Joshua. Well, despite Hatzor's power, it was eventually destroyed and basically forgotten. And archaeologists like Shlomit are doing important work that will help us understand Hatzor and why it's a significant place that people shouldn't miss when they tour in Israel. I'm sure glad we didn't miss it as we travel around Eretz Israel, the Hebrew way for saying the land of Israel. But on to our current tour. For the past several tours, we've been at some Old Testament sites. This time, I want to take you to a New Testament site. It's also in the northern part of Israel, so it's not too far from Hatzor. Let's hop back on the bus for a quick 20-minute drive. As we drive, you may feel your ears popping. That's because we're on a bit of a descent. We're headed to Capernaum. You might also hear it pronounced Kafarnum or Capernaum. And Capernaum sits right on the Sea of Galilee. It's absolutely beautiful. But the Sea of Galilee is the second lowest lake in the world. The first place winner is the Dead Sea, a site we've been to and enjoyed floating in. Now, here's an important thing to note about the Sea of Galilee. You hear the word sea in English and immediately think of a sea as an ocean, a salt water body of water. But that's actually not the case. I hinted at it just a few moments ago. The Sea of Galilee is a freshwater body of water. In effect, it's a large lake. If you've read the New Testament and heard the Sea of Galilee referred to as Lake Kinneret, you may have already guessed this. By no means is the Sea of Galilee a small lake, though. It's 13 miles long and 7 or 8 miles wide at the widest point, but it's all fresh water. When I first heard that the Sea of Galilee was a freshwater lake, I was a bit confused because lakes don't usually have crazy storms. But the Bible recounts a time when there was a violent storm that Jesus calmed when he and his disciples were on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. Listen to Matthew 8. And look to the right as I read. We're currently driving along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. And this story took place somewhere right out there in that water. 
When Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, a violent storm developed on the sea, so that the boat was being covered by the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And the disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of a man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Well, first, that's impactful on a spiritual level. Note how Jesus addresses his disciples, you of little faith. Now, we might laugh at the disciples and say, oh my goodness, you guys have Jesus in the boat with you. Stop worrying. But before we do that, let's examine ourselves. How often do we allow our own anxiety and lack of faith to overcome us? How often do we call out to God, I'm going to drown. Save me, I'm dying. In fear, this is often our response when external circumstances look bad. And the disciples saw a storm coming and they were frightened. We really aren't any different. We see the storms of life heading our way and we panic. We think our boat's going to capsize and we're headed down into the water. But although today we may not have Jesus physically in the boat with us on the Sea of Galilee, if we have accepted his gift of salvation, we are saved and we know that nothing on earth can touch us. The storms of life may come just as the physical storm on the Sea of Galilee came and scared the disciples, but those storms can never shake us. Now, we may get a little wet and cold and tired. I'm sure the disciples felt physically uncomfortable as the wind and waves picked up. But what does Jesus do for them? He rebukes the storm, and there was great calm. As we're here at the Sea of Galilee, where this storm and Jesus' miraculous calming of it took place, it's a great reminder that God can do the same for us. He can bring that great calm into our lives when we've lost hope and think we're headed to the bottom of the sea. But I also want to note something else from that passage of scripture here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Note how Matthew says a violent storm developed on the Sea of Galilee and how waves were coming into the boat. It seemed like the boat was going to capsize. And you can imagine these boats were nothing like what we have today. It was just a small wooden boat, no motor. And if too much water got into the boat, it would assuredly sink. Like I mentioned earlier, this passage confused me the first time I learned the Sea of Galilee was a lake. Lake shouldn't have storms like this. But a little understanding of the geography of the area can clear this right up. I mentioned that the Sea of Galilee is the second lowest lake in the world. It lies very low in the Rift Valley. Look out the windows of the bus. Note the hills on either side of us. Because of its placement in the valley, the Sea of Galilee is prone to sudden and violent storms. The types of storms that could capsize a little first century fishing boat like the one Jesus and his disciples were in. So even though the Sea of Galilee is a lake, things can change very fast out there. It's something Jesus' disciples, many of them fishermen, would have been aware of, and it's something that boaters here are still on the lookout for today. But I hope that helps clear up that passage of, of Scripture for you. 
The Sea of Galilee is a bit of an outlier for a lake in terms of the crazy storms that can happen right out there. Oh, I just saw a sign for an exit I've been wanting to take you all to. I'm going to have the driver uh, briefly drop us off. It's a quick stop and it's right on our way to Capernaum. And this will help make sense of the fishing culture Jesus was himself a part of here at the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum. Hop on out and let's head inside the museum for a quick stop to see the famous ancient Galilee boat. Let me quickly grab tickets. Okay, let's head into the special room where this ancient boat is kept. Oh, oh my, it's cold and dark. They have to be very careful with this ancient find to keep it preserved. Come stand around it and I'll explain more. You'll see that what in front of us is clearly the outline of a boat. I mean, it's, it's wooden and it's in the shape of a boat. It's not perfect by any means. It is thousands of years old and was only recently uncovered. Before that, this fishing boat was buried deep in the mud on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So it quickly becomes more impressive when you consider that. But this does give you a good sense of what a first century fishing boat would have looked like. You can see the wood beams across the bottom to give the boat stability, and then the sides curved up. And you can see the sides sustain the most damage. The front does narrow into a point, the back is wider, as is typical of some boats today. So this gives you an image of, again, what a first century fishing boat would have been like. What the boat that Jesus could have been in would have looked like. So why is this so valuable for us to look at? And why did I make an impulsive stop here? Well, see, this is commonly called the Jesus boat. For one, like I've mentioned, it's an ancient fishing boat from the first century AD. So when Jesus was on the boat with his disciples, as we just read about from Matthew 8, it at least likely looks similar to the type of boat that Jesus would have been on out there in the Sea of Galilee. But more than that, experts actually think this could have been the very boat Jesus is said to have used in the New Testament. Let that sink in. Jesus himself may very well have sailed around the Sea of Galilee right on that boat that we're looking at. Experts have come to that conclusion based on descriptions of Jesus's boat that he would have sailed on. And we also know that Jesus's ministry led him close to where the boat was found. So although there's no clear evidence, it's interesting to at least entertain the idea that Jesus was on this boat right out there on the Sea of Galilee. I also want to tell you a bit about the process of how archaeologists who discovered it in 1986 actually came to uncover it and preserve it so that we could see it today. See, this boat couldn't be excavated in the typical way. When we find artifacts in the dry earth as archaeologists, it's a lot simpler. We can pick the dust and, and dirt away uh, until we get what we're looking for, and then we can just take it out. Or if it's something more valuable, perhaps a fully intact clay jar, or maybe even some gold coins. If it's that, we call a conservator over to do the rest of the work. But archaeologists couldn't just pick away the mud and then lift this boat out. No, this boat had become totally waterlogged, and it would have fallen apart had they done that. So the archaeologists employed a unique process. Now, the boat was actually first found by, by brothers, two fishermen, from Kibbutz Ginosar, and that's the kibbutz on which this museum now sits. The brothers were amateur archaeologists who enjoyed finding artifacts from Israel's past, 
and there are a ton all over Israel. Anyone who wants to be an amateur archaeologist better move to Israel. It's the best place to be because basically anywhere you step, uh, you're going to find something ancient. They actually wanted to find a fishing boat from the Sea of Galilee, and they supposed they had a pretty good chance when a drought lowered the Sea of Galilee and, and, and the water level significantly. So there were now exposed parts of the beach that had previously been underwater. And so they walked along, and these two brothers found remains of the boat that is, that is now in front of us buried on the beach, and they called some experts. Experts were very happy with this find, and, and so they came and they wanted, to, they wanted to excavate the boat. But see, they had a limited time period to get the boat out because the water would rise again. And so as I mentioned earlier, they couldn't just dig the boat out and call it good and move it to, move it to a museum. Uh, the ancient wood was fragile and waterlogged, and exposing it to the atmosphere was dangerous. So actually, people on the excavation team had to constantly spray the boat with water and also shade it during the day from direct sunlight. This was dirty and hard work. Well, once the team was able to get the boat out of the mud, they had to spray a polyurethane foam around it so it would stay together. The foam was essentially a mud replacement. It encased the boat as the mud once did. They also added fiberglass ribs inside the boat. I can imagine they were terrified in doing all of this. Here's this amazing find of the Jesus boat. Now they have to put a white foam all around it and put fiberglass ribs on the inside. And although there were conservators on the site who knew what they were doing and knew the chemical compounds that would work, I am certain their hearts may have skipped a few beats when they had to spray the polyurethane on the boat. Thankfully, they made a smart move. The foam was perfect. In fact, uh, come over here. You can actually see some of the remains of the foam coating that are now on display in the museum. See, it basically looks like what you may see as part of a modern building's insulation. The moments following the polyurethane coating were some of the most significant in the excavation process. The archaeologists found the boat could still float. Actually, look here. There's a picture of that moment when they first tested the floating capability. And note the joy on everyone's tired faces as the boat, covered in this foam, is floating by its own power on the Sea of Galilee, the same lake that it once sailed on thousands of years prior. The team then decided that the best way to get the boat to a nearby conservation facility would be to float the boat to the site. Packaged in the, the polyurethane foam, the boat could be securely transported along the lake. Once the boat got to the conservation facility, the team took off the foam covering and put the boat into a fiberglass frame. And next, the boat was put in a synthetic wax bath for over a decade. So it didn't go right from being excavated to being placed in the museum for people like us to enjoy. Now, the wax bath was really important because the wax actually replaced the water in the deteriorating wood cells. It's what allowed for the wood to eventually dry and stabilize such that it can now sit before us today. And you can even still see the wax residue around the boat if you look closely. Experts also dated the boat in a few methods, radiocarbon dating, using the materials in the boat when it was found in the mud, and then also uh, hull construction techniques and they, they found the boat was almost assuredly used in the time of Jesus. We also know that the boat would have gotten a lot of use. There is evidence of many repairs being done on the boat. At some point, the owners probably took all the wood from the boat that could be reused. 
Remember that wood was extremely valuable at this time. There weren't a ton of trees in Israel. So, of course, when the boat was maybe no longer able to be used, they weren't just going to throw the wood away. They wanted to reuse parts that, that could be recycled. And so the fishermen then probably sunk the body of the boat to the bottom of the lake uh, when they were done taking off the, the recyclable wood parts. So perhaps that's another reason the sides of the boat are kind of missing. They got reused for, for some other purpose. But it was so crucial that the fishermen did sink the body of the boat to the bottom of the sea because that mud coating prevented decomposition uh, of the wood. And so we can be really thankful for that because it preserved it for us to look at today. Well, that's the Jesus boat. I hope you enjoyed seeing an actual first century boat that Jesus himself could have been on. Or at the very least, it, it looks similar to the boat he and his disciples probably used. Like I mentioned, there's no way to actually tell if Jesus was on this boat, but at the very least, it is possible. With our new knowledge of first century fishing boats, I promise that this will be important for our next stop. Let's head back out to the bus and go about five minutes down the road to Capernaum, here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Now, Capernaum is a significant site because it was the base for Jesus' ministry in the Galilee when he was an adult. Note what Matthew says about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Matthew also tells us that this is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, which talks about the Messiah going to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali to be the great light for the people dwelling in darkness. But Capernaum was officially founded before Jesus in the 2nd century BC when a number of fishing villages sprang up around the Sea of Galilee. A number of Jesus' most famous miracles also happened here. It's so cool that in a few moments we will actually be inside Capernaum and get to see the place where all of that happened, where Jesus Christ miraculously healed people. I'll just name a few to jog your memory. Remember the healing of the, the paralytic who was lowered by his friends through the roof to be healed? That happened at Capernaum. And what about the healing of Peter's mother-in-law who was terribly sick with a fever? And remember, back then, fevers truly could sentence someone to death. They obviously didn't have the same medications we're now fortunate to have that help us recover from a fever rather quickly. Oh, and we'll also get to see what some people presume to be the remains of Peter's mother-in-law's home a little later on the tour at Capernaum. One other significant miracle is the healing of the Roman centurion's son. You'll remember that the centurion exercised great faith that Jesus commended him for uh, when he affirmed that Jesus could simply say the word and his servant would be healed. At Capernaum, there was also a synagogue from the time of Jesus. Or it's at least what some archaeologists believe to be the remains of the synagogue from the time of Jesus. It gets complicated, and we'll get into that when we're actually standing there. We do know, however, from the Gospels that Jesus taught in the synagogue at Capernaum. The question is, are the remains currently marked as the synagogue from the time of Jesus actually a synagogue? It's an important question. It's one we'll dive deep into. Well, we're almost at Capernaum, and it's going to be a great tour as we stand in the place that Jesus himself called home for a large part of his earthly ministry. But we'll have to hop off the bus and check it out next time, since we're out of time for right now. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage. 
The Armchair Travel Show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our adventure here in Capernaum, the town that was the base for Jesus' adult ministry in the Galilee.